It uh, doesn't occur very often, and when it does, it only lasts for a brief moment. I'm talking about an eclipse, a solar eclipse, the point in time when the moon passes between the earth and the sun and it blocks out the light of the sun. See, our moon just happens to be exactly 400 times smaller in diameter than the sun. And our sun just happens to be 400 times farther away from us than the moon. Which means if you happen to be standing in the right place in our planet, when the moon stands between us and the sun, you might have an opportunity to witness not just a solar eclipse, but a perfect solar eclipse. Now, why is that important? Well, it's during, uh, it, when the disk of the moon stands between us and the sun, and the disk of the moon now hides, perfectly hides and conceals the disk of the sun, at that moment, it gives scientists an opportunity to see things and learn things they would not be able to discover at any other moment. For example, it's during one of those perfect solar eclipses that scientists get a much better view of the sun's corona, the crown of the sun, its outer atmosphere. That's a part of the sun that normally is really hard to see because the light that comes from the surface of the sun is so bright. But when the bright light is hidden, now scientists can better examine and study the gases and plasma and the, the solar flares that kind of spill off the edge of the sun there. Or here's another example. It was way back in 1919 during one of those perfect solar eclipses that Sir Arthur Eddington took a team of astronomers from Great Britain down to Brazil just so they could get a better view of this. And during that eclipse, they could take some measurements because they wanted to find out if Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity was true. Is there any plausibility to it? See, Einstein, just three years earlier, 1916, had first published that theory. And it was a whole new way of thinking about the universe. I mean, a radical, a really radical way of looking at the world. But was his theory right? So, and, and then to help us appreciate that, uh, uh, I don't mean to get technical here, because <laughs> this is really past my understanding. This is way above my pay grade, okay? But as I understand it, one of the implications of Einstein's theory is that when light passes, like the light from the other stars, when the light passes a massive body like the sun, then the gravity from that massive body, the gravity from that sun will cause the light to bend. Now, is that true? Can light bend? Well, that's what Sir Arthur Eddington and his team of our astronomers observed back there in 1919 as they were taking measurements during that perfect solar eclipse. And it was because of the discovery they made there in 1919 that they put Albert Einstein on the map. I mean, from that moment on, his name became a household name. He became one of the most famous scientists in all the world. Well, on and on it goes. There's just all kinds of things scientists can see and learn and observe during that special moment when you have one of those perfect solar eclipses. And here's the point I'm trying to make. Under normal conditions, there are some things that are just not visible to us. The brightness of the light hides it. But when that bright light is hidden, when it is concealed, now we have an opportunity to see and learn other things that weren't possible before. Now, does not that fact, that truth, remind you of a verse that comes from the Bible? It's a verse that comes right out of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, where the Bible says, it is the glory of God to conceal things. It is the glory of God where sometimes he will intentionally cover things up. He will intentionally hide things. So now that we can't see this, now we'll begin to notice and see and learn about something else. And God not only does that in the universe at large, he does that in the Bible too. We're going to see an example in the scripture that we look at today as we talk about this fellow Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who in the world is that? Well, we meet him first in the book of Genesis. And the first time we meet this guy, he immediately grabs our attention because he is described as both a king and a priest. And those are two offices that nowhere else in the Old Testament are they ever 
put together. I mean, you have Samuel, who's a priest and a prophet, and you have David, who's a king and a prophet, but nowhere else do you see the role of the king and the role of the priest put together. In fact, on a couple of different occasions, like with King Saul and then many years later with this guy, King Uzziah, when these two kings tried to perform the duties of the priest, on both occasions, both men were severely punished by the Lord. The throne and the altar were to be kept separate. And yet, here in the book of Genesis, here's this man, Melchizedek, who's both king and priest, and we learn that he was given these responsibilities by God himself. Genesis chapter 14 says he is, he is a priest of the Most High God. So clearly, Melchizedek is somebody unique. Nowhere else in all the Old Testament, anybody else giving these two jobs to perform at the same time. And then here's the other thing that we find to be intriguing. He appears in the book of Genesis. Well, the book of Genesis is a book where anybody who's anybody has a family tree. I mean, uh, every, with every key figure in that book, somewhere along the way, at some point in the story, the writer of Genesis will stop and give you a genealogy. He, he does that with uh, Cain, Seth, Noah. He does it with Abraham and Isaac. He does it with Jacob and Esau and many others as well. With every important figure in that book, somewhere along the line, the writer of Genesis will stop and say, hey, wait a minute. You need to appreciate where this person came from. Take a look at their family tree. See all the ancestors they had. See all the line of descendants, all the people who come after him. And he'll give you this long list of names. But we don't have that with Melchizedek. And even though Melchizedek only appears in just three verses, yet right off the bat we know he's very, very important. And why do we know that? Because Abraham, the one he meets with, Abraham, the greatest of the great, I mean, the Bible takes all the way from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 25 just to tell us a story of Abraham, and then it doesn't stop there. He keeps talking about Abraham all the way through the rest of the Bible. He is this preeminent figure because he's not only the father of Israel, he is the father of all God's faithful. But then Genesis chapter 14, you watch Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek, and you don't do that unless you intend to show honor and give homage to someone you recognize to be greater than yourself. So here is Melchizedek, obviously greater than even the great Abraham, and yet here he is in a book, the book of Genesis, that's big on genealogies, and Melchizedek has no family tree. I mean, nothing's said about his dad or mom. Nothing's ever said about when he was born, when he died. Nothing's ever said about any kind of predecessor or any kind of successor. It's just like all of a sudden, out of the blue, he just appears on the scene, and then three verses later, he disappears. And so we kind of scratch our heads and think, well, maybe he wasn't human. Maybe he was an angel of some sorts. No, 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 no. The Bible's pretty clear there in Genesis, and especially in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is a real man living in a real city. It's just that many of the facts about his past and many of the facts about his future were intentionally left out of the record. In fact, I believe, because of what we learn here in the book of Hebrews, that when God put the book of Genesis together, he deliberately hid he deliberately concealed many of the facts and details about the life of Melchizedek. He hid that so that we, later on here in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, could begin to discover something unique and wonderful about Jesus. Let me put it this way. When I was a little boy, there were times when my father would take me to the circus, Barnum and Bailey. Here's this giant tent, huge tent. Never seen a tent that size before. You get inside the tent and you're sitting way up high down there on the surface. There's three rings and in all three rings something special is going on. There on the far side are the lions jumping through the hoops and there on the other side are the clowns juggling the bowling pins and riding on the unicycles and doing all kinds of funny things and there in the center ring are the elephants standing up on their hind legs. I mean as a little boy all this action going on all at the same time and every one of the rings I was just fascinated by all of this. 
But at certain parts of the show, they turn off the lights and just put the spotlight on the center ring. What was going on in the other two rings was now hidden from our view, and it was hidden deliberately so that now everybody in that tent would focus their attention on the center ring and watch those people up high flying around on the trapeze. I think that's what God does in Genesis chapter 14. He deliberately hides and conceals some of the facts and details about the life of Melchizedek so that later on in the book of Hebrews, he can put the spotlight on Jesus and enable us to learn some really wonderful things about him. So take a look at this with me. I'm going to begin in chapter 6 and verse 20. And I want you to kind of keep this in the background of your mind. We're going to learn a lot of interesting things about Melchizedek and Jesus and see a lot of interesting parallels between Melchizedek and his ministry and the, the life and ministry of Jesus to us as our high priest. But what we need to keep in mind is why is he talking about this? Why does all of this matter? Because the main lesson that's being taught in Hebrews chapter 7, it comes down there in verse 11 when it says Jesus is a priest of another kind. That word another means another of a different kind. He, he, he's, he's not the same. He's not like Aaron or any of the other priests we've ever known. Jesus is in a different category. He's in a different class. And because he's a different kind of priest, that means he can do things for us that no other priest could. You see, it's because of Jesus we have a whole new way of connecting with God. We have a whole new way of relating to him. He is a priest of a different kind. Now watch how that idea is highlighted and emphasized in these verses we read here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, right at the very first part of this sentence, we learn something really important about Jesus. Jesus is our forerunner. That's something that cannot be said about any other priest. You know, Josephus, the first century Jewish writer, uh, he, he talks about how uh, you begin at Aaron, the very first high priest way back there, 14, 1500 B.C., and clear to the time when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., from that beginning to that end, you had 83 different high priests, but not a one of them was anything like Jesus. And here's one of the facts that sets Jesus apart from all the rest. He is our forerunner. It's a Greek word, protomos, and it's a word that was used back in Bible times to talk about the work of a, or describe the work of a scout, Somebody who goes in advance of the military, somebody who goes ahead and kind of check things out, see what lies before them, any kind of dangers we need to avoid, any kind of obstacles we need to prepare for. Hey, find us a spot so on the following night we'll have enough space so the entire army can have a place to camp out. All the men can have a place to bed down and set up their tents. And so the, the scout goes out in advance, but he goes out in advance so that eventually all the others can follow along too. And that's the key idea behind this word protomos, or forerunner. He goes in advance so that eventually they, they can come and see and enjoy and benefit from what he's already experienced. That's why back in the ancient world, that word protomos, forerunner, it was sometimes used to talk about a philosopher who would start a school, a brand new school. And he set up that school not just so he could study and learn. He set it up so that others could come along and become students too, so that others would have an opportunity to learn and grow. Or the word was sometimes used to talk about somebody founding a city, setting up and establishing a brand new city. And they set it up not just so they could live there, they set it up so others could come and become residents as well. Hey, I found a great spot to live. This is a wonderful environment. You need to check it out. He sets up this city not only so he can be blessed, but so that others can come along and benefit from it as well. Well, this is one of the things that distinguishes Jesus from all those other high priests. See, always before, it was only the high priest who was allowed to enter in 
to the Holy of Holies. And he was only allowed to do that once a year, the annual day of atonement. So when he went into that room, he went in alone. And everybody else in the nation of Israel had to stand back and stay away and keep their distance. Only he was allowed to enter that sacred room. Only he was allowed to have this opportunity to enjoy this awesome encounter with God. But now because of Jesus and his death on the cross, he has ripped the veil into. He has removed the barrier. So now not only does he enter into the heavenlies, now one day we're going to have an opportunity to enter into the new heavens and the new earth as well. And it's not just some, something fantastic waiting for us in the future. Even now, because of Jesus and the work that he's done, we have an access to the very throne of God. We have an opportunity to get close to God, to enjoy an intimacy with the Lord that wasn't possible before. You see, Jesus is our forerunner. He has entered on our behalf. He entered a place that normally was off limits to us, but it's not off limits anymore. And so he's a different kind of priest. See, he didn't come from the line of Aaron like all the other priests did. Jesus is different because he comes from the line or the order of Melchizedek. Now, to help us really appreciate what that means, the first couple of verses of chapter 7, he's going to lay out some facts and details about Melchizedek. What is it about Melchizedek? And then begin to notice the parallels between him and Jesus. Verse 1, chapter 7. This Melchizedek was a king, the king of Salem. That's the city, and not just the city but the territory, the region where he would have, would have ruled and reigned. Not only is he a king, he's also a king or a priest of the God Most High. And the first time Melchizedek meets Abraham, he meets Abraham on a day when he's returning from a battle. He's just defeated the four kings from the north. And Melchizedek comes out so that he can bless him. Now the writer of Hebrews says, if you want to appreciate what a great man Melchizedek was, and what a great king he was. You've got to see him in contrast to all those other kings that you read about back there in Genesis chapter 14. See, Genesis chapter 14, this is the first time the Bible addresses the topic of war. First time we even, it even mentions the subject. And how did the war come about? Well, there's these four kings way up north, evil men, tyrants, dictators. And they control everything that happens down here in the land of Canaan. For the past 12 years, they've kept everybody under their thumb. For the past 12 years, they've required everybody in the land of Canaan to pay tribute to them, a, a heavy tax to these wicked men who live way up north. Well, after 12 years, the people of Canaan say, hey, enough is enough. And they decide to revolt. In fact, there's five kings down here in the south who form an alliance and think, hey, you know, five kings against four, we should be able to pull this off. But you need to understand, these five kings down in the south, morally speaking, they're not any better than those other four kings. See, one of the kings who's a part of this new alliance is a king who comes from the city of Sodom. And another one of these kings that's a part of this new alliance comes from the city of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll let you know, just like the guys up north, they, morally speaking, they're just corrupt as they can possibly be. Well, they decide to revolt. The four kings up north hear about this and say, we're not going to put up with this. So they gather their armies. they got huge armies. They gather their armies, and they come down to do battle. They're going to crush the rebels, and that's exactly what they do. I mean, the battle's not even close. It's just a rout. They, the four kings come down and defeat the five kings, kill a lot of people. The remaining soldiers flee and run away, and the four kings gather up all the spoils and then take a lot of people captive as prisoners and begin to take them back home. Well, one of the young men that they took as a captive was a young fellow by the name of Lot, Abraham's nephew. And one of the soldiers who was fighting for the south who survived the battle went running to Abraham to share the news. And immediately Abraham is alarmed. 
It's Lot, nephew, family. I've got to do something about this. So he instantly gathers the 318 men who work for him. See, Abraham's a rancher. Got lots and lots of livestock. He's got 318 ranch hands. Help him out with this, with this empire that he's got, okay? But he gathers them in, and they're going to go chase after the four king boys. We've got to go get them. Well, when I'm reading Genesis chapter 14, I'm thinking, Abraham, Abraham, this is crazy. Number one, Abraham's at least 75 years old, if not older at this point. He doesn't belong in a battlefield. Number two, he's not a soldier, never has been. His whole life he's been a rancher. He knows everything there is to know about animals, but he doesn't know a thing about swords and spears and shields, and neither do any of the 318 ranch hands. They work on a ranch. They've never been on the battlefield before. And these four kings that they're going to fight against, over the past 12 years, they have not lost a single battle. And the army they got, it's huge. It's enormous. I mean, Abraham taking on these four kings is like taking the baker from your local donut shop and putting him inside the boxing ring and asking him to fight the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world. Now, what are the odds the baker is going to win that fight? They're not good. <laughs> well, same way with Abraham. I mean, the, the courage that he displays at this moment in his life, it is extraordinary. He gathers his 318 men. They go chasing after the four kings. The Bible tells us they have to travel more than 100 miles before they finally catch up with them. When they do, middle of the night in a daring raid, sneak attack, Abraham divides his men into three units. Surprise attack. They, they attack the four kings, and they win going away. I mean, it's just amazing. Following day, the four kings realize they're losing this battle, so they gather up whatever army they got left, and they go running away. And the Bible says that Abraham and his men chase them for another hundred miles. It's as if they were saying, don't you ever dare step foot in the promised land again. So they have traveled more than 200 miles. They fought this long, exhausting battle. Now they've got to travel another 200 miles just to get back home. So by the time they get back home, Abraham's men are just drained. They are exhausted. That's when Melchizedek comes out to meet with them because he wants to bless them. These men need help. He, he wants to pour into them. He wants to give them refreshment. He wants to put them back on their feet again, emotionally and physically and, and spiritually. He, he wants to make them well, make them strong again. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, do you not notice the parallel between Mal, uh, Melchizedek and his ministry to Abraham and his men and, and Jesus and his ministry to us as high priests? Jesus knows all about the battles you've been fighting this week. He knows all about the struggles you've been going through and how you've been taking a beating, and yet he wants to come and minister to you to restore your soul and renew your spirit and put you back on your feet, spiritually speaking. Here's another parallel, verse 2. It says, And Abraham, as he meets Melchizedek, immediately recognizes his greatness. And so he gives them, he's gathered all the spoils that have been taken by the four kings, all this wealth, all these resources, and now he gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And the writer of Hebrews says, what did Abraham see? What was it about this man, Melchizedek? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, let me point out two things. Number one, notice his name. The name Melchizedek, it means king of righteousness. It's letting you know what kind of king he is in contrast to those other nine kings that we learned about there in Genesis chapter 14. All these kings morally corrupt, not a bit of integrity in their heart. You can't trust anything they say or do. But here's Melchizedek. He always tries to do what is right. I mean, here's a man with this enormous authority and power, yet he uses that power for the benefit of his people. 
And when you've got a righteous king, a righteous leader like that, what kind of effect does it have on the people? Well, notice the second thing about him. He's the king of Salem, and that name Salem, he's actually a king of a peaceful place. Anybody who happens to have the privilege of living in this region, this territory, where he leads, he takes the leads, they're going to thrive. That's what that word peace means. You thrive, you begin to flourish because it's such a healthy, wholesome kind of atmosphere. It's good. People become fruitful. People become productive. He's a king who's created this peaceful atmosphere. Well, again, the writer of Hebrews says, do you notice the parallel between Melchizedek and his leadership and Jesus and his leadership? He is the perfectly righteous king. And when you intentionally place yourself under his leadership, under his lordship, you begin to thrive. You begin to flourish. You now can become that man, that woman that God always wanted you to be. Notice the third parallel, verse 3, and then we'll finish with this. The writer of the book of Hebrews kind of turns to his Jewish friends at this point and says, Hey, you remember that day you were in the synagogue? And the rabbi, happened when he picked up the scrolls that day, he happened to pick up the scrolls of Genesis. And he puts them on the platform, and he opens them up, and he opened up to that part where it talks about Melchizedek and Abraham, and he's turning to his Jewish friend and saying, you remember that when you first heard this story? And it didn't, didn't it kind of strike you as kind of curious when you're hearing this story, all the things that were not said about Melchizedek? I mean, it never said anything about his dad and mom, so it was almost like what it says here in verse 3, it's almost like he didn't have a father and mother. And nothing was ever said about his family tree, so it's almost like this guy didn't even have a genealogy. And nothing was ever said about, uh, you know, where he's born when he died. It was like the guy had no beginning to his days, no end to his days. All these facts and details intentionally left out of the record. So with what, what you're left, now who does Melchizedek begin to make you think of? Who does he begin to resemble? He resembles the Son of God, a priest of a different kind. Unlike any other priest, he remains a priest forever. You see, according to the law of Moses, only Levites were qualified to serve as priests, and the Levites could only begin that service at the age of 25. Only then were they qualified to enter the temple and begin to offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people. And yet, at the age of 50, they had to retire. So their service to God and their service on behalf of God's people was limited, temporary. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus has no such limitations. In fact, you get down to verse 25 of chapter 7, and it says this about Jesus. He is able to save completely. Or in the King James, it says he is able to save to the uttermost. What does that mean? It means two things. He can save fully, and he can save forever. Fully, he can save anyone from any kind of sin. No matter what kind of dilemma you're in, he can rescue you. No matter what kind of hole you're in, no matter how deep that hole is, he can pull you out. He can save in a comprehensive way. But he not only saves fully, he saves forever. His work is permanent. All that he does on our behalf, it's good for all eternity. Now, you can just go on and on like this all the way through Hebrews chapter 7 with these facts and details about Melchizedek and Jesus. But here's the question. Why is he talking about this? Why do we need to know this? When I was a child in the early years of elementary school, I can remember going to the school library and I'd head straight to the reference section and I'd pull out one of those giant atlases because as a little boy, I was just intrigued. I just wanted to get a sense, where am I in this big world? Where am I in reference to all these other countries, these fabulous places that I've been hearing about and learning about at school? 
So I pull off that giant atlas book and boom, set it on the table and open it up. And the first page was just a, a general map of the entire world. One giant page, you could see every country of the world. England's way up over here in the right, Australia way down over here in the left. And on that first page, everything looked pretty much the same. Pretty much the same size. That's not the right perspective. So I'd flip over a couple pages and I come to the page that just showed me Australia, the continent of Australia. And then to give me a sense, as a boy, this is written for kids' behalf, to give me a sense how big is Australia, down in the bottom corner of the page, there was a tiny picture about the size of a postage stamp, and it said, England on the same scale. I went, whoa. You know, that other page I looked at, England and Australia, they looked to be pretty much the same. But now, here's a much more accurate picture. England's not even close to be as big as Australia. Suddenly, I had a new perspective, a perspective on how big things really were. Is that not what the writer of Hebrews is doing? Page after page, he keeps making these comparisons. I mean, he starts off the book talking about angels, and instantly we're just overwhelmed. Wow, look at the angels, these supernatural beings who don't have near the limitations that we human beings do. They are so impressive. And then the writer of Hebrews comes along and puts a picture of Jesus on the same page. Jesus on the same scale as the angels. And instantly we're just blown away. Why? There's no comparison. The angels seem so tiny in comparison to him. Jesus is in a different category, a different class. Or you turn over a couple of pages and the writer of Hebrews begins to talk about Moses, the greatness of Moses, the greatest prophet in all of Scripture. And we begin to think to ourselves, wouldn't it have been wonderful to live back in the days of Moses, to, to have known a great man like that? And then the writer of Hebrews comes along and puts a picture of Jesus on the same page. Jesus on the same scale as Moses. And again, we're just blown away by the two. There's just, there's not even a match. It's not even close to being a match. Jesus is so much bigger and so much better. And on and on it goes with every page. And with every one of those comparisons, what is the writer of Hebrews trying to do? He's trying to encourage his friends, who, his friends who are right now at this moment, they're suffering and being persecuted. Some have lost their jobs. Some have been thrown in prison. His friends who have all kinds of problems on the map of their, the, the, on the map of their life, their problems just seem huge. But then the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, can I put a picture of Jesus on that map? Can I put a picture of Jesus on your life page? And then notice, Jesus on the same scale as your problems. What do you see? Oh, wow. There's no comparison. He's so much bigger and so much greater than any challenge we face, which means what? No matter what kind of trouble we're in right now, he can do something about it. He can help. So you're trying your best to be this good parent, this godly parent, and yet the kids never seem to listen to anything you say. Don't give up. Please, don't give up on the children. You, you do your best to share your faith with your friend, and yet every time you bring up the topic, he just doesn't seem to be interested in what you're saying. Don't throw in the towel. Please, don't give up on your friend. Every day you're working hard to be this good, godly, loving wife, and yet the heart of your husband seems to be just as hard today as it was six months ago. But don't quit. Don't quit loving your husband. Why? Because in every one of those situations, a breakthrough is still possible. And possible why? Jesus, Jesus on the same scale as that mountain you're trying to climb, there's no comparison. Hebrews 7.25, he can save anyone from any kind of sin. He can deliver any person from any kind of trouble. 
So when you get discouraged, when you begin to lose heart, stay connected to Jesus and realize that because he is your priest, your high priest, he can build bridges and he can take you to places that no one else can. Let's pray. God, I just want to say thank you for the book of Hebrews. What a gift. What a precious gift it is. All the way through this book, you just give us all these beautiful pictures of Jesus where we're just reminded again and again of the great things that he has done for us. And with every one of those reminders, we're reminded that he did all of this on our behalf because he seeks a life. He seeks a relationship with us. So, God, my prayer today is this. Encourage each and every one of us to draw near to Jesus. And encourage every one of us, God, to open up our hearts and give Jesus that opportunity so that he can draw near to us. And I pray for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 14, it's the first time that Melchizedek meets Abraham. And the Bible says he meets Abraham on that day when he's returning from the battle. He and his men have been on this long journey. They fought this long, exhausting battle. So by the time they get back home, they're drained, exhausted, worn out, tired, weary. But that's why Melchizedek comes out. He comes out so that he can bless them. But how? How did he do it? Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, it says, And he brought out bread and wine. He brought out the bread and the wine so that Abraham and his men could be refreshed, built up, made strong again. Is that not the ministry or part of the ministry of Jesus as our high priest? He knows all about the battles you've been in. He knows all about the struggles and trials you've been going through, how you've been fighting it out and struggling it out with Satan and sin, and many times you didn't come out on the winning side. You're all beaten up. But once a week on a Sunday morning, it was Jesus. This was his idea. Jesus set this up. He set up this time, this special time of communion, an opportunity where you can just be with him, and he can just be with you. And begin to pour out his favor upon your life. Or as the Bible says, Romans chapter 5, he can pour out his love into your heart. See, this is the Lord's Supper, not ours. It's the Lord's Supper. And it's Jesus who brings the bread and the cup. Why? So that he can breathe his life into our tired and weary soul. Will you open your heart to him?